Luke 21. We began last week, we looked at verses 5 through 19. This is Jesus' um, teaching on the future. And so we got through uh, verse 19. We'll be in verses 20 through 28 this morning, and then we'll wrap up the chapter, Lord willing, next next week. Have you ever felt like your world was ending? Not the world, but your world. Uh, I can remember when I was in fourth grade, we moved out of the house I had grown up in. And when my parents told us we were moving, my older sister and I felt like our world was was crumbling. We had this neighborhood that we lived in and this house that we liked. And it was like everything was falling apart. Maybe you can think about times when that has happened. Maybe trivial things. Um, maybe... Um, Something embarrassing that happened to you in junior high or high school, and it was like, your world is over. I never want to go back to school ever again. I'd like to crawl in a hole somewhere. Or, or your sports team lost, or your favorite television show got canceled, and it's like, the world is falling apart. Uh, maybe more serious things, though, where you felt like your world is crumbling around you. A lost relationship that you had invested time and energy in, and it crumbles, and you think, my world is falling apart. Maybe the loss of a loved one that you, that happened and you felt like everything was shattering around you. Maybe you lost your job, your, your car was stolen, you lost all of your possessions and it seems like your world is imploding and falling apart. We've all had times like that, some of them more trivial and some of them much more serious. And as the disciples are hearing from Jesus about the temple in Jerusalem being destroyed soon, that that's going to happen, it's as if their whole world is crumbling around them. For, for the temple to be destroyed, for Jerusalem to be overrun, w- would be like their world falling apart. And Jesus is talking about this historical event here in Luke 21, and he's also talking about when the, when the end of the world truly will come, that there will be a day when all the kingdoms of this earth and all that we glory in apart from Christ will come crumbling down. This world is not cyclical. It's not a circle where there's, a, there's periods of rebirth or things renew all the time, but rather it's, it's a line, it's, it's linear, and it's coming to a certain point. And the point that everything is pushing towards is when Christ returns. It's all moving towards that moment when he comes back and sets up his kingdom, which will last then for all eternity. But we're moving in a place and we're moving towards what we would call the end of the world. As we think about that here in, in Luke 21, Jesus is preparing us for this, this ever-approaching end. And he's calling us to find refuge, to find security, to go somewhere where we will be safe and secure. And he's calling us to find refuge, to find protection, to find shelter in Jesus. When the world ends, Jesus is the only place we can find salvation. Let me say that again. When the world ends... Jesus is the only place that we can find salvation. When the end of the world does come, everyone is going to be affected. Every single one of us will be affected. And so if we want to be wise, if we don't want to be foolish, then we will listen to what Jesus has to say about the end of the world, and we will prepare for it rightly. It would be foolish to ignore what he says here. So let's let's focus in here on this passage. It's not an easy passage. It's, it's, it's back and forth in time. It's difficult phrases here and there. But let me just remind you of some things that we said about the text last week. If you weren't here, or maybe just to remind you, 
some things that we saw that hopefully will help us to see this more clearly. So these are some big ideas about the text. The first thing I want to say is Jesus is answering the questions of the disciples, which refer to the timing of and the sign that would come before the destruction of Jerusalem. So we saw that at the beginning. Jesus is answering some questions from the disciples. He tells them that the temple is going to be destroyed. And then they say, when is this going to happen? And what will be the sign that comes before it happens? So those are the things directly that Jesus is addressing. So we need to remember that. That's the first thing. Second big idea, just to refresh our memories. The events that would precede, that would come before the destruction of Jerusalem, are history for us, but they were future for the hearers. So in other words... When Jesus is speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem in around 30 A.D., it hasn't happened yet. And the people he's speaking to, it's future for them. So when we look at it, it's, it's history. But for them, it would have been the future. And so when he is talking about these things, he is predicting what is to come. So we need to remember that. And it's coming soon, less than 40 years after he says it. It'll happen. Third thing, just to remind us, while these things are historical, the events described mirror and point towards the signs that will precede Jesus' return. So he's speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem. But in speaking of those things, those events mirror or point forward to the end of time before Jesus will come. So before the destruction of Jerusalem, it's a time of distress. It's a time of destruction. And even now, it's a time of distress and destruction before the time when Jerusalem is destroyed, it's a time of persecution and witness. And even now, it's a time of persecution and witness. And so these things are mirrored now in our time. And the fourth thing, just to get us into the text again, Jesus is making a distinction between the destruction of Jerusalem and the last days. So again, for the disciples, to say that Jerusalem is destroyed is to say the end of the world has come. And Jesus is saying Jerusalem will be destroyed. The temple will be torn down, but it's not the end of the world. That is still to come. And actually, as we look here in chapter 21 and verses 20 through 28, we're going to see that Jesus has both the destruction of Jerusalem and the future return of the Son of Man, of him, and the establishment of the kingdom. He has both of those things in view. So previously he talked about this time of war and distress, a time of false messiahs and false prophets. He says all those signs are going to come, but not the end. And he says there's going to be a time of persecution, and you're going to be witnesses, but that's not the end. It's not time yet. So he says all these things are going to happen, but that's not the end. And then verse 20 comes. Look at verse 20 of Luke 21. Luke 21, verse 20. But, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Then let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant. And for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. 
for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up. Raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Just very simply, if you look at these these verses, 20 through 28, verses 20 through 24 are speaking about the coming destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And then verses 25 through 28 are talking about the end of the world and the return of Christ when he comes back to set up his kingdom. So that's the simple way that we'll just break it in half and we'll think about this passage in, in two parts. And as we think about the destruction of Jerusalem, I think we'll put it under this heading. Don't seek refuge in Jerusalem. That's our big heading for this, verses 20 through 24. Don't seek refuge in Jerusalem. So let's go back in time. we got to get some historical context. So if you like history, maybe you'll like this part. <laughs> let's try to understand what Jerusalem was like in the days of, of Jesus. Judea, and therefore Jerusalem, which was in that area, was under the control of the Roman government during the time of Jesus. And we've seen that there's been sort of unrest, and people were not really happy with that. There was a Jewish leader who was in place, but who was under the authority of Rome. And that was little consolation for some people who wanted complete independence. Um, there was even the question of paying taxes to Caesar that we saw earlier. And, and there's sort of this, um, this angst surrounding that question. And it reveals that there were people that just didn't like the rule of Rome. As I was thinking about it, it sounds like, you, you know, in, in early American history, when England was ruling over and, and the Americans just weren't real big fans of that. And they didn't like the taxes either. And there were people there that were ruling over them, but they were from England and they weren't real happy about that either. And so there was this sort of angst. And eventually, a revolution happens. That's essentially what's happening here. A group called the Zealots. You may remember one of Jesus' disciples was Simon the Zealot, was part of this group. The Zealots were opposing the Roman government in different ways, and they were, and they were revolting against Rome. So there's also this tension between the Jewish people and the Roman government, this tension between the Jews and the Greeks, and it breaks out in riots at different points in history. Things are volatile. We can even think about the conflict in Israel today where you just never know when something's going to erupt. That's how it's like in this time period. And in 66 B.C., so if you struggle with, not not 66 B.C., 66 A.D., so if you struggle with those those dates, just, you know, right now we're in 2015, so like some 2,000 years, a little less than that earlier. So in 66 A.D., about 30-some years after Jesus has ascended, a rebellion breaks out um, of the Jewish people against Rome. And it's going to last solid for the next four years. The events of this period from 66 A.D. to 135 A.D. are the, the Jewish-Roman wars. There's, there's wars happening. And this here, that we, we, when we think about the destruction of Jerusalem, it happens in the first Jewish-Roman war. The people of Judea, this region where Jerusalem is, they, they push the Romans out and they destroy any symbol of Roman rule. And in response, Rome starts to attack Jewish towns on the coast and smaller areas and they start killing Jews and sending them out from their homes. So much so that people in this rebellion start to then flee to Jerusalem. They go to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the center of Israel. It's the capital. And it made perfect sense to go to Jerusalem when armies are invading and, and fighting against you because Jerusalem 
is a fortress. Jerusalem sits on a hill. It's surrounded by, by valleys. At this time, there's a system of, of three walls that surround this city. We've already, already heard about how large the stones in the temple were, and the stones in the walls were, 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 were at least partly, not, not as impressive, but impressive. And this Jerusalem is an extremely secure fortress. So if there's going to be a war, you want to go to a safe place. You want to go and you want to go to the most secure place that you can get to. And so that's where everyone's going. Which is why it's amazing what Jesus says. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that that its desolation has come. Then let those who are in Judea flee to Jerusalem. No, flee to the mountains. And he says, and if you're in the city, get out. And if you're in the countryside, don't go near the city. He gives them the sign. The sign. Remember, they want to know when all when's all this going to happen. Here's the sign. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Now that's kind of a vague sign. But they but they they got it. And church history tells us that there were actually Christians who, when they saw Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, fled, and they they got out of Jerusalem. They, a lot of them went to a city called Pella. And they, and they found refuge there, and they did. They were not destroyed in the destruction of Jerusalem. But it didn't make sense necessarily. The reason Jesus has to give this instruction is because that's where everyone's going to go. That's why you tell kids, don't take candy from strangers. Because kids say, it's candy. I'm taking the candy, right? But rather here, he's saying, don't go to Jerusalem. That makes sense, but don't go there. Jerusalem was... Indeed, it was surrounded by armies, just like Jesus predicted. The Roman leader Titus, who later became emperor, decided that he would lay siege on Jerusalem. So he surrounds it, keeps anything from going in or coming out, cuts off the supplies, hoping that he'll just squelch this Jewish rebellion that's going on. But the siege didn't go as quickly as he, as he expected. The Jewish people, the zealots in particular, would not surrender. The historian Josephus, who gives us some of this account and was sent in multiple times to try to um, to, to bring some sort of resolution, um, he left one time with an arrow wound. Uh, so they, they wanted nothing to do with compromise here. They'd rather uh, die than compromise. They would not quit. And so this siege lasts for about seven months. One of those months was the month of Nisan, where a, a large festival for the Jewish people happens. The festival of Passover. And where does everyone go for Passover? They go to Jerusalem. And so Titus, in a calculated move, says, you want to go into Jerusalem? Fine, go in. And he lets all the pilgrims go into Jerusalem. And then he lets none of them out. And, and so there's this siege. And now it starts to, to, to pick up steam because there's more people eating all the food and, and using all the supplies. And people are ready to make compromises. And the zealots at one point start setting stores of food on fire to keep people from from bringing some sort of compromise with the Romans. Many people are dying from disease in the city. They're dying from starvation. Imagine seven months surrounded, and, and it's just everything's falling apart. Some people were killed when they tried to leave the city. Titus finds that people are, are heading out, and, and they're getting supplies and bringing them back into Rome. And so to stop that, he digs a trench and builds his own wall to surround Jerusalem. And anyone, anyone who's found in the trench is captured taken up to the wall that he has built and crucified on the top of that wall so everyone in Jerusalem can see what happens. It said that on some days up to 500 people were crucified on that wall, 500 Jews that had tried to escape. Imagine that. The siege lasts seven months. 
people being crucified, people dying of starvation, the stench of death, of bodies that were rotting for those, those months, nowhere to bury them. It was horrific. And eventually, after hundreds of thousands of Jewish people died due to starvation, the Romans breached the third wall and they invade the city. Including the temple, they, they burn the city. People who are survived are taken as, as slaves. Josephus says that 1.1 million Jews died in the siege. Most people say that he's exaggerating a little bit, but literally hundreds of thousands, one number I read was 600,000 people died in this siege. And so after this long period of time, the Romans come in and they have no mercy on the people. You can see why Jesus would say in verse 23, Alas for women who are pregnant and for those nursing infants in those days. Can you imagine being in Jerusalem, pregnant, or with a nursing child? It's just a horrific event. You're suffering from malnutrition, which would have an effect on the baby, whether born or unborn. This thing that's a blessing, you know, we celebrate when people have babies. This is now a curse. It's something that you don't want to happen. Jesus says that there will be those who die by the edge of the sword and others who will be taken captive, and that's exactly what happens. Those that were not killed were made slaves and spread all around the Roman Empire. Jesus is speaking about future events. He spells them out. And you know what happens? Everything he said. Everything Jesus said happens. Let's pause for a minute and remember this. Jesus is the Lord of the future. we've, We've been thinking about Jesus as Lord. Jesus is Lord of the future. He is the true prophet. What he says will happen. We can trust that even if we don't totally understand everything that he's saying. We know that he is fully aware of what has happened and he controls, he ordains all things. Even Jesus' words go hand in hand with the prophets. Remember what it says there. It says in verse 22, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Speaking of the Old Testament, of prophets that had spoken about this destruction of Jerusalem. And Jesus, in concert with those prophets, says this city will be destroyed and it is destroyed. All that God says will happen. His word is Sure. Now, what that does for us is it gives us this this confidence in the words of Jesus. If Jesus says something about the future, it's going to happen. Even if I'm confused about it, if I don't know when it's going to happen or how it's going to happen or what it's going to look like, it will happen. And we can look at these words and say everything that he said happened. So I can trust that this is going to happen. You think about the end of the world. Sometimes we doubt the end of the world. Is it really all going to come crumbling down? Those who are apart from Christ maybe say, you know, it's not going to happen that way. After death, there's nothing else. There is no coming judgment. And some of us, even as Christians, we get we get tired and we say, is he coming back? I mean, we've been waiting for a long time. It just doesn't feel like it. But Jesus says that he will come back and we know that what he says is true. So we need to trust what Jesus says about the future, even when we don't understand. You know, we summarize this section by saying, don't seek refuge in Jerusalem. Let me just say that a different way, which I think is part of what Jesus' point is here, is this. There is no refuge, there's no security, there's no refuge in religions that reject Jesus as Savior. There is no refuge in any other place but in Christ. 
The destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, is a clear statement that 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 is not the location where salvation is found. Because it's destroyed. Not only is Jerusalem not a hope for military conflict, it is also no hope for ultimate salvation and rescue from the judgment of God. Jerusalem crumbles. No earthly structure, no religion that rejects Jesus as Messiah will ultimately bring protection at the end of the world. Isn't that why Jesus weeps over Jerusalem when he enters in? He says, if you would just accept me, you would know what brings peace. But in rejecting me, you are bringing judgment upon us. Any religion that rejects Jesus brings judgment upon itself. There's this time of the Gentiles. This is a difficult part in the, the passage, but he talks about the time of the Gentiles in verse 24. And this seems to speak of a time when, when non-Jews, those who were not ethnically Jewish, would find refuge in Jesus, would find salvation. And he's saying Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed and the time of the Gentiles will start. This time of the Gentiles, I think, it refers to the Gentiles coming in and, and being part of God's family. It's the events of the book of Acts where the gospel goes from where? From Jerusalem, then where? To Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is the start of the time of the Gentiles, and I think that we are still in that time of the Gentiles today, that God's heart is not for one specific people, but is for all nations, is for all people. His heart goes out to every tribe, tongue, and people and nation, not just one. And there's this great ingathering that's happening right now, people being gathered into the family of God. But there will be a time when that is fulfilled, it says, right? Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be a time when that is done with. And once that happens, then the end comes. But but there's something here in Romans 11, Paul, I think, refers to this. And this is just something that we can continue to think about. Romans 11, Paul is talking about his his brothers and sisters that are Jewish people. And he talks about the time of the Gentiles. Here's what he says in Romans 11, 25 to 27. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Doesn't that sound like what Jesus is saying here? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in? And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sin. One of the big questions that we have to deal with is, what's going to happen to ethnic Israel? That's one of the questions we have to ask about when we think about these end times things. And I I don't fully know everything that's going to happen with this. But it would seem that what Paul is saying is that when the fullness of the Gentiles comes, there is some sort of ingathering of the Jewish people. All Israel will be saved. Now, what I also think is clear is that that ingathering is through faith in Jesus. There is no more hope in Jerusalem, in the temple, or in its sacrifices. It is torn down. There's no refuge in a physical temple anymore. The blood of bulls and goats, Hebrew says, never could wash away sin, and it never will. We need to be careful when we think about what's coming that that we don't think that something that, that Jesus has come and fulfilled all of these pictures and that somehow we're going to then revert back to it. The temple is gone and Jerusalem is gone. And Jesus now is the way, the truth, 
and the life. He is the temple. No one comes to the Father except through Him. So the fulfillment of these words, it gives us this confidence, though, that what Jesus says is going to happen is going to happen. And he's going to talk about what's going to happen in verses 25 through 28. So don't seek refuge in Jerusalem. But in verses 25 through 28, you know what we're told? Seek refuge in Jesus. Seek refuge and security and salvation in Jesus. Now, why is there this switch that now he's talking about the future? Let me give you a few reasons I think that he's talking about the future and not about the destruction of Jerusalem. First, these signs are more cosmic and severe. Um, the destruction of Jerusalem was, was orchestrated by God. It was vicious. But here these images are of God breaking into creation itself. They're more cosmic. They're more severe. There's a severity to these images such that, that Jesus says, he says what? That the, the very heavens will be shaken. I think when you think about the destruction of Jerusalem versus the return of Christ, it's like a thunderstorm versus a hurricane. Now, I've been in thunderstorms, and usually you get through them just fine. You could even be outside in them, and it's, it's not the end of the world. I've never been in a hurricane. Some of you have. Typhoon, depending on the hemisphere you experienced it in. But it's not a thunderstorm. It certainly lasts a lot longer, and I, it feels as if, from what I can tell, that the world is being turned upside down. And, and I think that's the difference between the signs that he talks about in the first part of this passage and then what he's speaking of here, where sun and moon and stars and the distress of nations, the roaring of the sea and waves and the heavens themselves being shaken. I'm reminded of Hebrews 12:26, the author quotes the prophet Haggai, where God says, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And the author of Hebrews says that in the end, God will shake the whole earth so that what is unshakable will remain. I think that's what this is. We can see that it's future because it's more cosmic, more severe. Also, these things happen on the whole world rather than a particular people or land. It says there um, in verse 26, people fainting with fear and with foreboding on what is coming on the world. Before that, he's talking about, it would seem, a specific area. He's talking about the land and this particular place. But here he's talking about, about the world, that it's coming on all people. Everyone is going to experience these events. So I think that's a hint that he's talking about something different. And then third, that the Son of Man has not come on a cloud. <laughs> as far as I know, that hasn't happened yet. And, and that's what he speaks of here. That's a reference even back to Daniel chapter 7. Jesus has ascended into a cloud and he says, in this same way, I will return. And we've talked about in Luke where he says it'll be like, lightning that flashes from one end of the sky to the other it'll be crystal clear that he has returned and it, it hasn't it's not crystal clear yet that the son of man has returned on a cloud with power and with great glory all of these things they mark the end the end that's coming this the end that all things are pushing towards where where jesus returns and he doesn't leave us in the dark about it does he he tells us what's going to happen Gives us signs. And yet there's this imminence, this idea that, that he can come back at, at any moment, that the events in verses 25 through 27 will occur, but they could occur right now. He could be here now, descending in a cloud. Look at those clouds today. My goodness, isn't that a great visual for us to think of him coming? And it could happen in this moment, now. How do we respond to that news? How did Jesus want his 
listeners to respond. This is where I think it's amazing to see the difference between verses 20 through 24 and verse 28. So the previous section, he's talking about all these terrible things and the anguish. People are running for their lives. Armies are surrounding Jerusalem. Those who don't get out are killed or captured. Jesus talks about this, and what does he say? He says, run for your lives. That, that's the counsel that he gives. Get out of Jerusalem. Run for your lives. What does he say in verse 28? He describes even more distressing, more perplexing, perplexing events. And then he says to his disciples, and he says to all who are his followers, does he say, run for your lives? No, he says, lift up your heads. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? This is even worse than the destruction of Jerusalem. And what he tells us to do, the counsel that he gives us, is to lift up our heads. Because if we are in Christ, then, then the signs that are coming will not touch us. This, this sign, this, that when Christ returns to make things right, that we are secure. We can trust what he will do. Some people say that there's, there's even a mirror in verse 20 of, of Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, that that, that also is something that, that will happen in the future. I, I don't know. That, that could be, but here's what I do know. I, I saw a parallel in, in Revelation to that. And it says here in Revelation chapter 20, verse 9, And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. It sounds like Jerusalem, doesn't it? So they surround the city. What happens when they surround it the first time? Destroyed. What happens this time? They surround the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. <laughs> That's what happens when the city is surrounded the next time. There, there is no destruction. There, there is, because if we are in Christ, then we are secure. This is a, this will all be fully realized, but Jesus' counsel to us is to straighten up, is to lift up our heads, is to not be afraid. Days are coming, and these are good days that are coming for us. We are in Christ. The days that are coming when we will, we will know Christ even as we are known by him. There will be no more distress, no more destruction, no more persecution. The, the cries of the elders in the book of Revelation, how long, O Lord, they, they will be answered no longer. The time has come, and he will return. There is dread when Jerusalem is destroyed. But when he returns for his for his children, there is joy. He comes in power and great glory. But only if you seek refuge in Jesus. If you're seeking refuge in Jerusalem, whatever that might be, some earthly power, some good works that you've done, some faith that's apart from Christ, you're just hoping your good will outweigh your bad and everything will be okay when he comes back. You're just hoping that maybe it won't happen that there will be no end of time and we'll all just sort of dissolve into oblivion. If that's what you're taking refuge in, then there is no hope and you should run for your life. It will be like the destruction of Jerusalem. Where are you going to run to, though? In the last days, there will be nowhere to hide. But you can hide now. <laughs> we can hide in Christ, that he is our refuge. As the Psalms say, he is a strong tower that we can run into and find safety. Because when Jesus comes the first time, does he come in judgment? No. He comes to take judgment. He comes to...
to become the substitute. And when Jesus dies on the cross, he takes all of the wrath that is described in verses 25 through 27. Jesus takes that upon himself. This shaking of the heavens. Jesus is shaken. Jesus is destroyed so that we do not have to be. Sin brings punishment. And when Christ returns a second time, it will be to bring punishment on the nations and on all who have rejected God and on any who are not taking refuge in Christ but have rejected Him. But if we come to Him and we have taken refuge in Him through faith in Christ, then nothing will shake us anymore. And we can lift our heads and we can stand firm knowing that when He returns in the cloud, He's coming for our salvation, not for our judgment. I think this is not just inevitable. We don't just say, well, Jesus is coming. That's not the response that he's given. I think this this picture of straightening up and raising your head is anticipation. That we are looking for this day. We are active and we are moving. We're doing what God has called us to do. But we are in anticipation of him coming. I, I couldn't help but think of Second Peter 3. He says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, a great way to think about it. The earth will be dissolved. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I just kept thinking about that question. Since all these things are going to be dissolved, what sort of people should we be in lives of holiness and godliness? There's an anticipation, there's a joy, but there's also this, this draw, this push to say, if Christ is coming, I want to be prepared. I want to, I want to be working, I want to be doing what he's called me to do. Not because that earns my salvation, but, but yet because I, I love him and I want to be caught doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I want to be able to stand up straight and lift my head. I don't want to be ashamed of the way that I'm living my life. We've all experienced that. You know, my, my wife goes to the store and, and I'm home with the kids. I don't want to be, you know, sitting on the TV, eating, sitting, sitting watching TV, eating ice cream when she comes home. I want to be doing what I'm supposed to do. I want to be caught doing what's right. I don't think that's a guilt thing, but rather it's, it's love. I want to do what pleases my wife, and I want to do what pleases God. If he's coming back, and if he, if I am secure in him, I want to live a life of holiness and godliness and faithfulness, so that when he does return, I will stand straight and lift up my head and welcome him, not with any shame or feelings of guilt. Of course, we, we will not all be as faithful as we need to be. We trust that Jesus has been faithful enough for us. He has done everything that we need. If you get nothing else, let's think the, the end of the world is coming. It's, it's, we're, we're pushing towards it. As Jordan said Sunday night, we're closer now than we were yesterday, right? We're, we're moving, moving, moving closer and closer when, to when the end of the world is coming. And Jesus is the only place that we can find salvation. Don't, don't find refuge in, in Jerusalem. Don't find refuge in in human religion. Don't find refuge in anything that you have created on your own, no matter how strong or secure it seems, because when the end comes, it will all be wiped away. It will all be burned, even as Jerusalem was burned. And only what will last is is faith 
in Christ. Don't seek refuge in Jerusalem. Because he's he's coming. It's as sure that he is coming as the fact that Jerusalem was captured in AD 70. That's a historical event that no one disputes. Jesus is coming back, and it's just as sure as as sure, if not more sure, that he will return. So let's take refuge in him every day. Let's let's live with anticipation for his coming. Let's be found faithful when he returns. We would live lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and even hastening the coming of the day of God. Let's take a moment of silence, and we'll just reflect on God's word. I'll pray for us, and then we'll close. Father, I pray this morning for those who have not taken refuge in Christ. And Lord, if there's anyone here who has not found refuge in you, I pray you would fill them with a holy fear at the fact that you are coming to judge the world and sin. Lord, draw them to faith and repentance that they would find refuge in you. And Lord, if we have found refuge in Christ and his finished work for us, his taking of your wrath, his giving us new life, then let us look forward with anticipation to your coming. And let us live lives of holiness and godliness as we wait. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.